0: Hello, it's Fangraphs Audio, Carson Sestouli. The guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com, Kyla McDaniel. He is the lead prospect analyst, as I say. This edition of the podcast, McDaniel makes his weekly Friday appearance on a Monday. It's his weekly Friday appearance, except it's on a Monday. The conversation that follows, we, we discuss almost accidentally, almost by accident, we discuss a number of the top 10 draft prospects for the 2015 draft. That is, this coming June, there will be a draft we discuss almost by accident in order of the top 10 draft prospects for that. Before that conversation begins, Kyla McDaniel, as he does frequently, has provided a musical interlude, so you will hear that musical interlude, and it will fade out into the conversation that's to follow. Once again, that conversation will be with Kyle McDaniel on this podcast, which is Fangraphs Audio. Thank you.
1: don't ever fix your lips like collagen to say something where you're going to end up piloting. Let me know if is a the problem then. I right, man, La 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 la. I my
0: money Portland, Maine. We spent a couple days for leisure purposes.
1: I prefer to call it leisure.
0: Yeah. Okay. I'm an
1: international man of leisure. I, I know. <laughs> you just cut me off. I ca- come on, I heard it.
0: Yeah, I know. I, I know. What, I mean, I just think you're going to say some. You're just gonna, you're gonna spout some BS. That's what happens, Kylie.
1: Is this, is this us? We're already back to this?
0: We what's it? That's it. The last time we spoke, actually, was in Ari- uh at least, at least in recorded form, was with, uh, um, was in Arizona with Eric Longenhagen.
1: Yep, and now he's dead.
0: Nope. He's not dead, but he has in the meantime, he has publicly announced that he is joining Keith Law to cover, uh, to cover what? Draft? Draft stuff?
1: Baseball, yeah, I believe it's baseball.
0: Yeah, baseball. But is he? What? He's not covering like um, minor leagues as so much as he's covering draft draft reports, right?
1: I, I, I know it's draft stuff, and I know it's some fantasy stuff. So I believe it's also minor leagues.
0: Oh, okay. All right, yeah. All right.
1: I actually just talked to him today. I probably should ask
0: him. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> we had just seen uh, Brett Lillick together, and Brett Lillick at the time did not look particularly great. And I think that he has not, uh, at least, like I don't know what he's looked like, but he has not put up great numbers since then either. I think.
1: Uh no, actually it sounds like Ryan Kellogg, uh the the softer tossing lefty whose velocity has jumped in the last couple of weeks or month or whenever it jumped, uh sounds like he might actually be the better one of the two now. We might have picked the wrong game to go to. What
0: um how do you so so what was what was the thing that made Lilic first and this is gonna I think this will lead us to Matuello. Matuela? Matuella?
1: Matuella, yeah.
0: Mat- that fall. All right, um,
1: so that's what everyone said. I don't know if it's actually correct.
0: Who is a duke uh a duke right-hander, a duke right-hander who's also a junior and draft eligible and um has had uh anyway, well, we'll get we'll get to him in a moment. And
1: later. of which a reported video has appeared on the pages of FanGraphs in the last week.
0: Right, yes, uh, very recently. And so <clears throat> here's my question though is how do you know So what's the first what's the thing that made Lilic – and, and this is not necessarily about Lilic. All of this, but I'm curious as to what makes a um, what makes a, a draft eligible prospect compelling to begin with, and then what has to happen for him. What has to happen? What, what do you take seriously uh, in terms of things that might affect his draft stock, and what and what might not? Because what what made Lilic popular in the first place?
1: Uh, I'm actually pulling up my notes so I can tell you. Okay. Uh, Lilic. Ooh, spelled his name wrong um he's been all right so i have some notes uh from the cape he was ninety two, ninety four, uh with four seamer and then would settle in kind of 89 91 and he left early with the bicep problem so some people thought that the ninety two, ninety four was the normal velocity and i believe he had been sort of sitting low 90s as a sophomore um and that so was, they so, were
0: that was the cape you said right Yes. Okay. So I think
1: people saw the 92-94 that kind of faded and then he left with sort of arm soreness or tightness of a muscle or whatever it was uh and thought oh 92-94 is what he's going to be and showed like you know sort of average breaking ball change up maybe a little little ahead of that and command of at least average. So you're seeing, you know, a potential four starter, maybe fifth starter, but sort of lefty with some track record and some size and kind of checks a lot of boxes, I guess to use a common phrase of mine. Yeah. And then yeah, this spring he came out, you know, more of that 89, 91 touching some twos and threes. Stuff wasn't quite as firm. And then when we saw him, I think he, he showed that kind of stuff early and then kind of faded into the high eighties after that. Um, so yeah, that's sort of his trajectory. And I guess we'll see if he can make that recovery
0: because i I remember i remember after that particular start you you both you simultaneously acknowledged that what we saw wasn't great but i think you also had mentioned well uh he was i think he had gotten pushed back a little bit because of the flu and so that you didn't also want to you did not want to put too much weight on that particular start and but now i guess what he's had a a couple more and the the numbers at least are not particularly impressive so at what point do you begin does it begin to tip the scales the other way
1: well, and this is another case where uh, we could probably transition this into an even bigger discussion, but um, you've if you've seen him perform, and you've seen him sit in the low 90s, and you've seen sort of the solid average, above average stuff, and fourth-fist-starter kind of thing, and then now you see him you know, 87 to 90, uh, the question isn't what is he doing right now, because it's pretty clear that he's not quite the same guy, it's why is that the case, and will he be doing that in the future? So, obviously, you're going to see some teams will have tons of history with him, and will use that history to bend it toward uh it's gonna go better. And some teams will usually have more limited history, lean more toward the the current and just say, eh, most of the times we see this guy, he looks sort of like an extra dude. He's more fifth, sixth round for us. Um, and usually, you know, it's obviously it's gonna be one of those teams that has sort of the more history and the more uh you know the more rosy outlook that's gonna be the one that drafts him. And as I've said many times on here before, the the idea of a draft board, uh, that there is like a consensus draft board that appears somewhere on the Internet, uh, depending on who you read or who you trust, and that that is going to be what 90% of draft boards look like, is completely ridiculous, and that is not how it works. Um, so if he say, – let's say he goes in the second round and 10 teams have him there, that means 20 of them have him where you, you and I would have had the guy that we saw. Uh, and neither one of them are necessarily correct. And if he ends up being a stud or ends up being terrible – that doesn't even mean they were necessarily correct either because this is more of a you know, long-run odds. So any one outcome doesn't really tell you. But since each player is unique, then it's hard to draw conclusions unless you've got five, six years of history and you've uh, seen their reports or seen them draft a lot of guys of a certain type, and you can say, oh, they, they tend to be a little high on this guy or tend to be low. So right. I guess I'm cautioning uh, caution.
0: <laughs> right. but so So teams must have their own way because obviously there's a lot of information. And there's a lot of data. I mean, it's you know some of it is more in the realm of hard data. Some of it is more, um, you know, it, it, it is being interpreted by scouts essentially, who digest it and then present it to their cross-checkers and scouting directors and GMS. And I guess that it, it, this is uh, this is well, like many of my questions, this is a naive one. There must be systems that different or that each organization develops each organization must develop a system by which to process all of this mass amount of data because all the things we just said about lillick it seems like he could be he could be any number of of types of player right and so there must there must be a way to um, emphasize certain information while sort of uh, de-emphasizing other
1: yeah i could easily see him being a 50 on one of my lists in two or three years or being in others that i barely should have mentioned
0: Right. So, so, yeah. And so how do you, I mean, is it just you, an organization might have like a range of possible outcomes?
1: I mean, I think you're probably giving them a little more credit than they deserve. There's not some sort of algorithm they plug all this info into and they're like, oh, turns out our thing says he's a fifth starter based on all of this uh, different and disparate information. It's more the, you know, the, the scouting director, the West Coast cross-checker, and the area scout have the most information. I guess the national cross-checker, whoever sort of the heavy hitters are. The, or the area scout passes along the sort of raw information uh, to these guys. They come in and see a starter two or three or four between all of them. Uh, they, you know, in concert with the, the medical and all these sorts of things – decide either, you know, maybe one of them maybe two of those four looks of those high level guys, he didn't have a good breaking ball, and then the other two he did. So they get in a room, Area Scouts most likely not there. Most most rooms he won't be there. And so you've got four high-level guys that have been handed all the information. Uh and maybe they know that the area guy likes him or doesn't like him relative to sort of the industry consensus. Uh but then they just decide like, all right, two of us saw there wasn't enough breaking ball. Two of us saw him 87 and 90 Medicals like eh, not great. Uh, you know, I'm obviously just sort of giving a hypothetical at this point. Right, right, right. Um, what do we want to do with this guy? And then at some point somebody speaks up and says, ah, I don't, I'm not sure he's a starter. I think we're looking at a you know long reliever, six starter, you know inventory sort of guy. And then usually they'll either all say yeah, or they'll say no. I think there's a little more. They'll come to some sort of consensus. He fits in this sort of area, this sort of future value, OFP kind of guy. And then they, you know, slot him on the board, they figure out what assignability signability is and say, All right, we have him valued three hundred thousand. Sounds like he wants eight hundred, he's probably not a guy for us, we'll go put him on the signability board, which is a. we'll talk about that in a second. Um and there'll be some sort of understanding. Like we have him as a 45, that is a third to fourth round talent that wants second round money. We realize there could be a little better there. Let's get him in for a pre-drive workout. If he it's 93 in the workout, then maybe we'll move him back up to the second round and decide that we'll pay him what his money is if he's you know if he's our guy at that pick. And there's just sort of a continuing. Sliding of scales and uh, balancing of information, but there's by no means, I guess, as you're calling it, a system. It's it's more just the judgment of three or four guys and the information that's gathered by them and the area scout.
0: Right now, there was uh, I know that having read a profile of um, the newer, uh, um, the relatively new scouting director for the St. Louis Cardinals, Chris Correa, mm-hmm. uh, who is interesting to me not only because he's from New Hampshire, but also because he went to Hampshire College. Uh, which college I cannot actually guarantee has inter varsity athletics. Does that um, mean it's an
1: older Hampshire if it's just Hampshire College?
0: <laughs> it's an old, it is an older Hampshire. I, it's actually not a very old, uh, it's actually not a very old college. I think it's from maybe the 50s or 60s. But they don't have grades there, is what they do. They do have dreadlocks, is another thing that they have. A lot but of is, hacky
1: sack over there? There is a
0: lot of hacky sack. Yes, there is a lot of hacky sack. There are also some, like, uh, art kids, too, with, the uh, the, you know, their tight pants and, uh, they're nice hair, if you know what
1: the, I mean. That's how you identify those kids. Art
0: kids, yeah, they got tight pants and nice hair. I saw, I saw some of them today. I was in Portland, Maine. I saw, there's an art school there. Tight, tight pants, nice hair. That's how you know, probably.
1: I, I, I can imagine you walking around that campus, and three or four of those kids walk by, and you're like, what? What are you? What are you in the Cure or something?
0: Yeah, I didn't say. That. I probably. No, I know. I know that they're not. Robert Smith is in the Cure. Smith is in the Cure. The listen,
1: Carson Sistuili taking <laughs> jokes literally since 1984.
0: Since 19. 19- why? Why is it eighty four?
1: I'm just trying to pick somewhere in the early part of your life. Yeah.
0: Uh, how are <clears throat> enough about? It. So Chris Correa went there, but but he developed a system, I, uh, f- f- a way to evaluate college guys. Yeah. And so, um, and that's well, Yeah, all and I, I know.
1: I don't know that particularly, but I know the Cardinals are famous for their college uh, lean in drafts, especially when uh, Sig and Luna were there, who are obviously now with the Astros. So right. they they took that with them at some level but i'm sure there's also some version of it left behind
0: and you would take a college kid because he because that that data that he's producing in college is probably easier is easier to interpret um into something that's predictive than than a high school kid's data
1: yeah there's just a, i think some people will uh, incorrectly just assume college equals less risk which is not always the case and may not even most of the time be the case, but often it is. I don't know if I said that correctly. But I, the, the reason I sort of hedged there is because with the showcase sort of uh, um, circuit and all this sort of thing, when you're talking about a guy that's you know sort of been on the circuit that's kind of known and people see him a lot of times these kids will be seen as a sophomore if you're a guy like nick gordon that was on a team with two draft eligible uh, sort of seniors when you're a sophomore and had some draft eligible guy you know when you were a junior these kids are getting seen for I don't know, 15 uh, games as an underclassman where they're basically paying attention and then there'll be another 30 or so games uh, before even just like the real showcase season the summer before. And so in a lot of cases, if it's him, Nick Gordon, or that kind of guy versus a smaller school guy that didn't get to play his first year or two of college, you have way more history and information with Nick Gordon and you've got bulk of dozens and dozens of at-bats of him with a wood bat against the guy throwing 90. So in, in some situations, and I would say even the most important situations, you might have more history with the high school guy and more information and less risk in that way, but there's obviously risk with just sort of, you know, the mentality of high schoolers, and he's 18, and so more <laughs> things are possible, especially if you're a pitcher, that things can happen and stuff like that. Uh But particularly the high school hitters that are sort of well-known and can be identified early, like Alex Jackson was watched since he was a high school sophomore.
0: Right, and he's, uh, he's in the Mariner system now?
1: Yeah, and he went sixth overall, was a threat to go 1-1. Uh I just went and saw a, a shortstop named uh, Cal Simmons at Kennesaw State. As far as I know, he wasn't even on the radar until probably this summer. So he's still kind of new, and that's sort of the average to below average amount of history for a college player. Um and, and these elite high school bats, you have maybe twice as much information, even though it's technically of a, a lower grade and there aren't stats of what they do with these showcases. But a lot of these teams are keeping track of what, what these kids are doing, like performance-wise in every showcase, and have all those stats. And so there is technically just more and better information.
0: Oh, that, yeah, that's an interesting way to think about it. Um, and it was, and, and, and you bring up the point too, that if a guy, you, you said if he's at a small school, it could also be at a big school, but he's been uh, he's been blocked by someone uh, who was also quite talented, and I know that uh, you and I had talked um, a month or more ago about a couple guys on the University of Miami, or maybe it's Miami University, whatever the one in Florida is. U.M. U.M. Uh, we talked both about um, what was it, George Skandarian, yep, and Ricky Eusebio. and I don't think either of them had received much in the way of plate appearances. Um over
1: was a JC guy. But yeah Eusebio and also the pitcher Enrique Sosa hadn't really played before this right. year. Right.
0: And I think well and maybe even Escondarian had been at South Carolina and hadn't played and then went to a JC and then went to Miami. Yes. So you're seeing him as a junior technically, but this is really his his first exposure to uh like proper, you know, D1 baseball. Um and Eusebio was another guy cuz didn't Miami have a, a big-time center fielder in recent years?
1: Yeah, they had Dale Carey the last four years. He was a big-time talent that was just talented enough without performance, but he was just talented enough to stay on the field all four years.
0: Okay, right. Opposed, so he was a, he was a senior sign, um, but he was not necessarily he wasn't without without merit at the same time.
1: And they had a I want to say it went like the tenth or fifteenth round chance Mack playing uh, right field. That was just sort of a solid or guy mm-hmm. that you know did enough to stay on the field. And they had. I want to say a left field DH, uh, Fiedler or something like that, that was also just kind of always in the lineup, not really a prospect, but just good enough that you're not going to let some freshmen play over him.
0: Right. And so then, then you have, so then you have Eusebio, you try, and I was watching the game, um, yesterday versus, they're playing North Carolina right now. Um, and North Carolina has some interesting arms, um, <clears throat> actually probably the most interesting arm. At least to me, as their Sunday guy, because he's a he's a senior who's shown increased uh, velocity. His name is Benton Moss, uh, and has also sh- uh, struck out a lot of guys. Um, but the uh, but so I was watching the the Friday night game though, and Ricky Eusebio hits a home run, and you know he's uh, he's put up uh, pretty excellent numbers otherwise, and is also playing center field, which may not be his uh you know, it may not, he may not profile as a major league center fielder, but you know he's still uh, holding his own in that capacity. But it still seems like even, uh, you know, the stats might tell you one thing and, but, but the stats, it's a possibility where neither the stats nor even the scouts have had an opportunity really to, um, establish enough in the way of a track record for him because, because, you know, as you say, like, these guys get blocked for, for years and they may not even get playing time until the junior year.
1: Yeah. And that's, I I guess, uh, that's the balance the high school kid has to, you know, kind of strike when he's deciding where he wants to go for college because, I was just at Kennesaw State. It's not super impressive facilities and it's in a smaller, than in the ASON, a smaller conference that'll kind of have one big kind of first round guy every year. They, Chris Anderson went to the Dodgers in the first round and had, uh, Max Pentecost obviously last year from Kennesaw State went in the first round. Um, but a lot of times if you're like big time freshman, especially if you're in like the Atlanta area and you're playing a lot in East Kyle that sort of thing, you might get to play in your first year and get three years of experience and, you know, play against some high level guys and, you know, sort of have that. But then, You only go to college once. What if you want to go to, you know, Auburn or Clemson or North Carolina, one of these huge programs? You just want to be a part of that and, you know, hopefully have like a run to the College World Series and all that sort of thing. Like you can't do that at the smaller school. And so you kind of have to decide what you want to do. And obviously there's pros and cons to both of them.
0: Right. And, but your, your suggestion is that maybe you want to go to the bigger school, but you're not going to get the same sort of exposure.
1: Or there's just a risk that you're going to, like Iskandarian, for whatever reason, it won't work out. And you'll have to go somewhere else, and then you'll end up at a school that you wouldn't have really considered at a high school because they're the ones that have, you know, a scholarship for you or whatever.
0: Right. Uh, we talked about, uh, was it uh, Matuella? Matuella? I say Matuella.
1: It could be anything.
0: Uh, let's see. Uh, Michael Matuella is a, a very tall junior uh, right-hander at Duke who um, entered the season. I think when you did your way-too-early edition, he was? He was Third, so that's very promising. But behind Brady again, so right. Well, who, um, whom, about whom? We'll speak uh, later, I think. Uh, so, what was the thing that got Matuella there? And then, and, and what's happened? Uh, he just pitched today. No, sorry, he pitched yesterday against uh, Boston College at neither team's home stadium because the uh, the Northeast is still a, a frosty hellscape. Um, but. But uh, and he, he, I think he, he struck out six maybe walked five or struck out five, walked four. It was not great. What, what's the thing that <clears throat> allowed Matuela to? Um, what, what's the thing that got him to throw on your list, for example?
1: Uh, I saw him uh, last March when I was up in North Carolina. He had made some buzz coming into his sophomore year as a guy that hit ninety-five and workout or in like you know fall practice. And then we heard he had been up to ninety seven early in the spring, but he wasn't draft eligible. So you don't get a ton of scouts kinda of going in to see him and all that sort of deal. But I was hearing from agents who obviously are going in to try to lock this guy up until they hear he's a dude, um, that you need to go see him. And so when I was up there, uh he was make he had been on the DL.
0: Wait, are you suggesting that agents would try and make contact with the player before Sorry I
1: mean advisors <laughs> who would like to speak with his parents. <laughs> okay. Um yeah, I didn't name any of them, so I guess I guess I'm in the clear.
0: You're fine, yeah. Yeah. Um
1: yeah so the I I we went up there to uh for NHSI we being a lot of us but Wait what um, is an
0: NHSI is
1: Big high school tournament in USA it's actually ha finished today it happened this year but there were almost no good players in in the first and second round terms whereas last year there were a bunch of them uh Michael Geddes Jacob Gatewood uh a bunch of guys and this year there was I don't know there was going to be a big one Colby Allard and then he got hurt the week before and it kind of made it not a reason to go uh which, actually, if I went, I would have been watching Benton Moss because uh, the good thing about that location and Kerry is uh, North Carolina, NC State, and Duke are all within the half hour. Um, so you can go kind of double and triple up games with that. So I went to go see him on a Sunday uh, after NHSI, and it was his first start coming off of uh, a latch strain on the DL. He would missed three or four weeks. And uh so we weren't expecting much. It was like 42 degrees. It was super cold.
0: This is Mitwella, uh, we're talking about. Yeah,
1: he's pitching yeah. at Duke. And it was his first start off of the DL. And we heard he hit 97, but we didn't know if that was real. And I was there with, uh, with Frankie from Perfect Game and Clint, who was with Baseball America, is now with the Indians. And we're thinking, like, all right, this guy's going to throw, like, 90, 93. We'll see a decent curveball. We, we weren't expecting a whole – we saw he's six We're like, he's probably not going to be super athletic. Like, let's kind of see what happens because, you know, you can't trust these advisors to be scouts or else they'd be scouts. Uh, and he didn't throw a pitch below 95 for two innings and was, like, blowing guys away, threw a 60 curveball, changeup was at least a 50, command was at least a 50, had some life on his fastball, uh, was pretty athletic, like, didn't seem sort of... Uh, you know, stiff stiff, stiff yeah. through the shoulders like Capella is like seem to check every box. And We're all looking at each other like, oh my god, like this is amazing. And that we like, I think all of us wrote something after that, basically like, you know, it's too early, but this is a one-one candidate. Like this is kind of untouchable. Like this guy doesn't really exist in college, really. And then uh, and then he decided not to throw that summer. I think he was doing some summer school and wanted to sort of rest his arm because he had already been hurt a little bit during the year after the velo spike. Uh, and then it came out that he had a sort of a spine issue, which is why he didn't throw over the fall. And then he came out this spring and threw three or four outings where he was like 90 to 93, would hit a five early, and then would throw some fastballs in the 80s. And everyone's like, oh, he looks okay. And I'm like, not a lot of people really saw him. Like coming into spring, very few people had seen him in like a real outing. And so since I had seen that that start where he shouldn't have been throwing hard, and he was, I'm like, that's not right. That's not supposed to be what this looks like. And then last week, uh, when our guy Jesse Burkhart was there, he hit 97 and sat 93-95 for a few innings and threw the good breaking ball and mixed in a decent changeup, and the delivery looked good, and everyone's like, okay, now he's back. And I was waiting to go see him until there was some confirmation that he was back. And then this week he got shelled, and I was just told by a guy at the game today uh, that he was having some soreness. And now we're, now we're back on red alert. Is he gonna be hurt or is there gonna be something wrong? Is this gonna be another pitcher that goes down? So, he's, he's been playing with our hearts. I would say he's probably a mid-first rounder right now with some pretty significant sort of workload and injury questions, but nothing sort of clear and terrible. Uh, but I think I told you before we talked, if he has like two or three good starts in a row and he's a top five guy, and this draft has been so bad, that's really all it takes.
0: Well, that's what, and that and that's what I was sort of started uh, getting at with Lilic is you're getting this information, and of course uh, the draft is uh, approaching at a pretty constant rate, the same rate at which yeah,
1: it's not it's not speeding up as far as I know.
0: Right, it's pretty constant rate. The 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 same rate as the Earth rotates, I guess. Right, rotates and also revolves around the sun. So that's it's a set rate. Hopefully, glad we got that out of the way. <laughs> but but. Um, but the, there's a there's a, obviously as you approach the draft there's an urgency um for you for you for someone who's interested in this sort of thing and writes about it and then there's also obviously urgency for the teams that are considering to draft him and I guess I'm curious as to how how much they weight the newest information especially as the draft is approaching
1: uh different teams look at it differently um some of them you can see from their history will really weigh a good Kate performance uh which obviously isn't the most recent piece of information but is maybe the most reliable because you can get multiple months of, you know, wood bat, high-level competition, day in, day out, kind of pro atmosphere where you have some access to the players. Scouts can kind of talk to them and stuff. Um, and you can talk to the managers who only know them there and aren't, you know, aren't beholden to them, will tell you what they actually think. So that's probably the most pure way to evaluate them. And so if they perform there – And then have like a tough spring or, you know, something doesn't quite go right, then teams are gonna process that differently, much like I said with the Lilic example. Maybe your area scout's been on them since high school, tried to convince you to give them a bunch of money in high school and kinda talks to them a lot and kinda can get some info that the other area guys can't get. You could technically be more correct by having more info and having sort of a different reading of that info, but like I said, for every team where there's a guy like that on Willick, there's gonna be ten that are just sort of like, yeah, no thanks, not really my kind of, and that's not the guy I'm gonna pound the table for. I'm gonna, I got some JC guy off the radar that I'm gonna kinda pound the table for and try to get him up the board and take him in the first few rounds. So yeah, the teams have tendencies, but it's not like there's a team that's known to be a team that overvalues the cape. It's just some of them, uh, on the whole, tend to sort of lean that way, and other ones tend to lean toward uh, recency. And there's obviously a case to be made for either, but being dogmatic about that either way would be kind of foolish because obviously everyone's different. And if a guy looks like he got better or looks like he got worse, uh, then that sort of changes how much you should look at a guy that looks like he just, you know, couldn't get going or maybe was a little injured or, you know, coach was burying him or they made him change his mechanics or, you know, things like that that appear to be something you could disregard and think you could fix.
0: You mentioned velocity a lot. Uh, it's no surprise. That, um, it shouldn't be a surprise. There's a there's a correlation between velocity and performance at the major league level, and rarely do you find, uh, especially right-handers, really do really do find them throwing much below or sitting at you know much below eighty-eight or eighty-nine. That's pretty rare. Um, you know, there's some left-handers I think who can get away with it a little bit more easily. Uh, e- I, I don't. I know that you probably don't value only velocity, but it does seem as though velocity is an important indicator for you.
1: Well, yeah, we were talking earlier about uh, Ryan Kellogg versus Lilic, and I was looking at my notes on Kellogg, and I've seen him throw in the mid 80s when he was a high school kid uh, in Canada. Uh, I was told in the Cape he was 86, 89, would like hit a 90 every now and then, and then randomly would sometimes hit a 92, and then other times wouldn't get above 88 and is like a low-energy, 6'5", 225, big lefty. Um, and the reason you would sort of round down on that is he had below-average slider and curveball, and sometimes way below average. Uh, and so him having a good changeup and hitting 90 and being big all seemed good, but then in the context of can't throw an average breaking ball, like, oh, he's not a starter. And now a guy that throws in the 80s it's not a starter, that guy's not really worth a whole lot. Well, now it sounds like his velo is uh, ticked up, And as Velo ticks up, the arm speed ticks up. And as arm speed ticks up, that usually means a curveball and or slider gets better, which has happened with him. And so Lilic started with above-average stuff and has sort of regressed to more average. And Kellogg started with below-average stuff and has now stepped forward to more average. And in general, you'd like the bigger guy with some momentum on his side, which means now some people are talking about Kellogg as the best guy of those two. And that's... That's that's why I'm saying the the sort of high school hitter is the guy to look for because they look relatively similar and are doing relatively similar things their whole career, whereas high school pitchers, uh, you can see them as a sophomore and identify like, Oh, he's athletic or oh he's got a you know, good motion, all that. But even like I remember I saw Spencer Adams who went in the first round last year out of high school. I saw him after his between his sophomore and junior year in high school and it was like pretty athletic kind of projectable, 86-89, okay breaking ball, okay change. Like, it it didn't really look like it does now, like the delivery kind of did, but you can look at that and be like, oh, that's a guy that could be 90-94 one day. Who knows if he will be? And then suddenly when he does, then all of a sudden his breaking ball gets better, and he's kind of a different pitcher altogether. You're just sort of identifying things you like, whereas these hitters – Things it's a very slow climb up a mountain. Whereas with pitchers, it's more like a roller coaster, where sometimes it's that slow climb up a mountain, and then sometimes it's you know flying down a hill, and sometimes it's flying up a hill, and sometimes it's up and then down and then up and then down, and there's all kinds of different sort of shapes to that growth pattern whereas the hitter seems to be a little more deliberate and if you can it's hard to judge a hitter off of a one game and one VP, but if you can consistently get a couple games here and there every six eight months it's you don't really need to pay attention quite as much right as close to the draft because you know the trajectory of what he's doing and so you can throw out one game if you need to whereas the pitcher if he randomly hits 97 and he'd never hit 95 before uh then that's a new thing that's the, probably the most important piece of information
0: yeah and 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 a confusing piece of information it seems like sometimes because in addition to perhaps being enthusiastic about his capacity to hit this new velocity then you're saying well what is it sustainable um and and to what degree should we um improve our you know our rating of him or our esteem of him uh, simply because he's he's exhibited that velocity
1: and some guys uh i remember hearing matt hobgood through 99 in a pre-draft workout and when that spring started he was eighty eight to ninety and then slowly kinda of crept up every month or two, he'd be a tick or two higher and then he all of a sudden was sitting in the mid nineties and hitting ninety nine in a pre draft workout. And then basically right after that was never the same and then was obviously a bigger, huskier dude, got out of shape and and now he's like having trouble getting into the nineties at all. Uh so there's obviously examples where a guy can velocity can take off and it ends up meaning nothing, and there's examples where that happens, and you're just basically getting a peak right before the draft or whatever happens of what's about to happen. Um, And there's certain guys like Hunter Harvey that threw hard at one point and then kind of settled in 90 to 93, and then he signed, and then right after he signed, he was suddenly 92 to 96. And it just sort of happens at different rates, and sometimes it's a leading indicator of this guy's about to take off uh, like I just tweeted this week about Brandon Klein. He went from 90 to 93, hitting a five, to now he's sitting 95 to 98, hitting 99.
0: Well, who's, Maybe, uh, where, is he, where is he a pitcher?
1: Uh, he's in the Orioles system. He was mm-hmm. their last cut from their list and was a former second-round pick that sort of checked every box as far as being athletic and sort of flashing everything, but had the UVA delivery, which is kind of bad that he couldn't get rid of and didn't have consistency to his stuff in his command. And apparently he just dropped that delivery finally after like three years after leaving UVA and his velocity took off and his slider got better and that helped the contrast of his changeup look better and the command's still there and he just took off. And sometimes when that happens, the arm can't handle it and Tommy John happens. Sometimes the body can't handle it and there's just general soreness and you have to dial it down. Sometimes it's an indicator that he's about to take off and become a top 10 prospect in baseball. And sometimes it just happens and then it just kind of settles back in somewhere lower and – uh, You know, it's a little less, and it's different every time, uh, which is why I'll probably put him at like a 45-plus future value just because it's, he's basically thrown three innings to prove this, and any of those things can happen, and the more negative ones are more likely than the more positive ones, but if he can throw a month of throwing anywhere close to that hard and looks like a different guy – and doesn't get hurt and everything seems okay, then the negative possibilities become less likely, and then he'll probably be a fifty or a fifty-five uh, if that sort of continues happening. But but yeah, if you want to try to take a guy from miss the forties group on a list to fifty-five based off of three endings, like be my guest, but you're gonna be wrong most of those times.
0: What uh, say say the thing about UVA delivery? Is that is that uh, more or well less defined than the the Stanford swing?
1: I yeah it's. It's obviously not the same because it's offense and pitching. Uh, but you can look. I, I embedded the video of Klein from high school or from college uh, when I tweeted about it earlier this week. Uh, it's on the Fangraphs YouTube page. Uh, basically, when you're getting your signal uh, from the catcher, you squat like you're about to sit on a chair, and then while you're still squatting, start your delivery from that sort of crouched position. Uh, which Danny Holton has done, all, Nick Howard has done, all of their guys do it to different degrees and, uh, to varying degrees of success. Klein did a little more than most of them and also, uh, did like his own little variation where, uh, I think he started squatted and then he kind of got a little more upright as he delivered. And then as he pitched, like his head started, looked like he was basically into a face plan on the mound. Uh, <laughs> Which, when you're looking at, I remember when I tweeted that, uh the video, people were like, who taught him to pitch like that? I was like, yeah, that was kind of the opinion at the time, that it's like, oh, athletic, big guy, good body, good arm action, stuff's above average, although it's inconsistent. Uh We'll figure this out. And it basically took three years for him to stop doing that because typically the UVA commits will start doing it in high school because that's what their pitching coach teaches, and then all of them do it to varying degrees, Um on campus, or maybe ninety percent of them, or something like that. Um, and it's you know it's prevalent. And I guess you know some guys have gotten away from it a little more quickly, and he took a little bit longer.
0: Hmm. If you go to if you go to Brady Klein, there is a Brady Klein shooting a gun. It's Brayden Klein. Oh well, that's why that's why I'm not finding it. But I will <laughs> say, if you go to Brady Klein, there's just a kid there shooting a gun. Good for him. He's living the American dream. Also, Klein spelled differently too. Anyway, it's not a great. Stretch right here of of the the show, but this let's, is what uh, they call good
1: radio, I believe in the biz.
0: But it is uh, right. Okay, so we just talked about the UVA delivery. We talked about matuelo, We talked about Lilek, I've uh, talked about a number of other things. Let's. Uh, uh, we haven't not talked about uh, an actual person named Brady. It's Brady Aiken who this past week, um, but he announced. Someone announced that he would be he would be having Tommy John surgery. Who announced it?
1: I guess he did.
0: Yeah. Okay. You Nobody know, thinks
1: just... he wrote that article. Everyone thinks uh, people in the Aiken camp wrote it. It's uh, a little more polished than you'd think a kid would be writing about his own experiences. But, yeah, it's, it's, it has been presented as written by Brady Aiken, and I'm sure he had some input.
0: Right. It doesn't begin, you up, question marks. <laughs> so, so one... Yeah, there were no
1: emojis, so I guess it can't be from a teenager. <laughs> can right? entirely
0: be a teenager, yeah. Um, but it's uh, – and... It'd
1: be funny if he wrote it and this the whole thing was one poop
0: emoji. <laughs> So, so right. It was a in the in the announcement. Um in the announcement he which he does. Oh yes, he did it via uh what, Der- Derek Jeter's uh Derek Jeter's webpage, right? The Players Tribune.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. The, uh, Derek Jeter who has the same advisor as Bertie Aiken.
0: <laughs> right. He uh so Aiken uh wrote something to the effect that uh yeah, I didn't I didn't side with Houston. Um there was a little bit of. It wasn't entirely. I think he expressed the fact that he didn't. He hadn't felt that he was totally wanted there. That they were pursuing him. They are pursuing him as much as one might expect from a from an overall uh, number one overall pick. And uh, ultimately, even though he was having to go through Tommy John surgery, he did not regret his choice. Is that right? Which
1: yeah, I think that's the reason why people don't think he wrote it because that sure seems like the talking point uh, an advisor want to get out there as opposed to the kid wanting to say, Oh, I had Tommy John and I'm recovering well and thanks for the well wishes. He wouldn't start thinking like, well, here, let me defend my decision. Like (laughs) that seems like a little bit more of a grown-up sentiment of someone that didn't get surgery the way to, uh, you know, to process that and talk
0: about it. Okay. Right. And that's where the second, now, what is this? Uh, so he was, he was number two, uh, cause we had talked about Matuella who was number three on your uh, way too early draft list. Uh, Which there will soon
1: be a not quite as early one coming in a few weeks. Okay,
0: it, it was, uh, and Aiken was number, Aiken was number two on that same list. Uh, well, we could check in with Brendan Rodgers. Do you have any, any updates about Brendan Rodgers?
1: Yeah, I tweeted about him this week. Okay, uh, don't say
0: anything about it yet. I'm just asking if you did. If you do.
1: Yeah, I, I have some... Short thoughts.
0: Oh, uh, short thoughts. So we'll, so we'll we'll do three, two, one. That'll be good. Because I think we, do, we, do we also do five as well? We do five? No, that's Phil Bickford. Nothing. We've not talked about Phil Bickford at all. Why yeah, he's also having some trouble. Number eight. Uh, number eight, though, Daz Cameron. Uh, you also talked about. So that no, we can get to a couple of these guys. Um, uh, Aiken was your number two. I assume. Um, while you still regard his talent as being there, he's not. He's not a. Well, is he a candidate still for this next draft?
1: Yes, he will be draft eligible. He will be drafted. I think he'll sign. Uh, I don't know where he's going to go. Um, there's some – I told you there are some things that I've been told that I cannot say, uh, but there is some chatter within scouting circles that this is not uh, – the medical issue here isn't just simply a uh, – uh, oh, he got Tommy John, and he'll be ready uh, in 8 to 12 months. Um, some people a little more concerned than that. And if it turns out that that's not what the case is, because like I said, it's sort of unconfirmed but persistent chatter, uh, then he'll probably go in the, you know, the range that Jeff Hoffman or, or Eric Fetty or Lucas Gilito went in similar situations, which would be somewhere in the top 20 picks, uh, and those were all in stronger drafts, so probably more in the top 12 to 15 picks for Aiken, uh, and if it turns out there's a little more there, like some people believe there is, and when his medical goes out that there's still some concerns, then then that's probably more in the second half of the first round, but I mean, he'll certainly get seven figures from somebody almost no matter what's wrong with him. And if it turns out there's, you know, nothing more wrong than just Tommy John, then, you know, that'll be, I don't know, about three million or so, if I had to guess, uh, which is obviously less than the five million, which is, I think is why that, that announcement made sure to sort of head off the uh, talking point of what are you going to do about all that money
0: you just passed up? All right. Uh, so, um, I guess, I don't know. Is there anything more to say about? It? He's not going to be throwing for a while. That's all. We're Nothing gonna more I
1: can say. That's for sure. <laughs>
0: okay, let's uh, give me some short thoughts. Brendan Rogers. So we just said Metwala was number three. Akins was number two. Now we have uh, now we have Brendan Rogers, number one. He's what? He's a he's a shortstop in somewhere from Louisiana or he's a Louisiana State commit.
1: No, all of that's correct. All
0: of this is totally <laughs> great. it's totally incorrect. It's a Florida State commit from Florida. So there you are.
1: From the Orlando area generally. Uh yeah, he's basically held serve. Uh there was a little a little little buzz I was hearing last couple weeks that he was uh struggling a bit at the plate and then after I called some people to see what what struggling meant, uh it came out that it was facing guys throwing 80 to 81 miles an hour. He struck out three times in one week. Uh but his His line that week was three for ten with two home runs, two walks, and three strikeouts. And I was like, "All right, that's not that bad. (laughs) Still hit two home runs that week when he struck out three times." And the thing that I tweeted, which I think I've talked about on here before, is I've seen Byron Buxton, Addison Russell, uh, Clint Frazier—you know, extremely talented guys that have all, you know, to varying degrees, already worked out uh, swing and miss. I think I saw Addison Russell swing and miss five times in a high school game. It uh, might have been six or seven over the course of back to back high school games, but it was a lot of swing and miss. Uh, and it was this sort of junk ball lefty topping out at 81. And sometimes guys with really fast swings that swing with wood bats against, um, against guys that throw 90 very often, mm-hmm. like that they, they face those guys more than they face crappy high school pitching, uh, especially if they have really good bat speed, have trouble slowing it down effectively to hit it in games. And some guys like Albert Almora are able to make that adjustment. Uh, and some guys like Russell and Buxton and, uh, David is another one will struggle a little bit. I remember I actually talked to Dahl after one of the games I saw him in in high school and I said, had a little trouble with that guy today. He's, you know, lefty throwing like 80, 83. He goes, yeah, I'd much rather that guy be throwing 90. That would have been a lot easier for me because that's what I'm used to. And he was one of those, Dahl's one of those guys that, you know, did the showcase circuit to death. And he was one of those guys where the showcase circuit was worth more to teams as far as his draft stock, uh, than his spring was because, um. Well, for obvious reasons. And well, they, saw, they
0: saw him facing more competitive pitching.
1: And saw that nothing was different necessarily about, you know, his head or the mechanics or anything like that. So that's more predictive than him facing a guy throwing 82, which, you know, 20 years ago, all you had to judge was the, the guy throwing 82. So you can see why statistically teams have gotten better at picking the right guys in the right spot because they have way better information to go off of. Right. Um, so yeah, when I when it was sort of revealed to me that Roger's struggles were hitting 300 with two home runs one week, I was like against guys throwing 80 to 81, I was like okay, that's not really a struggle. And especially in this draft where there's not a guy sort of pushing him for that one one spot that you know doesn't really have a lot of concerns and has a high upside and has some track record and all that, that guy doesn't exist this year. He's got track I've seen him play for three years now, and I'm not sure I've ever seen him commit an error. I don't think I've ever seen him swing and miss more than a handful of times in a game against guys throwing 90 with wood bats. Uh, he he's just not the guy you're worried about in that in that way. So, and the and the tools are there, and the upside there, and you know all that. So, yeah, that that's that. Those are my long, but supposed to be abbreviated
0: thoughts on. Right. So that's a. So it's still a. That's still a one-one for you.
1: Yeah, especially in this year. Maybe in another year, uh, that's you know the recency isn't quite good enough that there may be a similar guy that was happens to be an Almora type that just hits everywhere no matter how fast the guy's throwing. Uh, but that guy doesn't exist this year. So yeah, he's 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 still the strong favorite to go one-one. I would say.
0: Okay. Uh. Number four – I guess we're just doing this because I, I actually recognize some of these names. Uh, number four was Walker Bueller, who I know uh, missed the first couple weeks with Vanderbilt, but I think he's uh, – well, he's pitching again. I think he's doing all right.
1: Yep, I saw him last week.
0: Oh, you did, right, because you were at Vanderbilt last week.
1: I was at Auburn watching
0: Vanderbilt. You were at Auburn watching Vanderbilt, and I and I know that you, you – what well, you emailed me. You said uh, you were sending the effect of Sestui turn on your television mm-hmm.
1: – I believe I threw some names in there too. I think I called you an idiot.
0: Right, but I had to explain to you that I was in a different country, um, and uh, yeah. that uh, was not, was not a priority for me at the at the time.
1: Oh, well, the funny, yeah, that, that was a is a, a double header. It's a nice game. Uh, I got to see Bueller, and then who's going to go in the top 15 picks somewhere? And then in the second game, saw Jordan Sheffield, who was high profile guy at high school a couple years ago. Again, Tommy John. Turned down some money from the Red Sox, went to school, didn't pitch his freshman year, uh, pitched a little bit this summer, and then sort of making his you know high level debut now. And he was 92 to 95, hit 96, really breaking ball. Yeah, it's all back. That's it's a- actually pretty similar to Bueller, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, there's some some differences, but in the broad strokes, you got a sort of six foot six one uh, type guy, not a lot of playing, uh, not a lot of projection. Uh, Bueller's a little easier to see. Sheffield's got a little more funky. His delivery's a little more like Carson Fulmer, but still not quite that crazy. Mm-hmm. And he hides the ball well, but he's got sort of the same, same kind of velocity. They both have 55 or 60 breaking balls. They both have sort of usable changeups, uh, sort of project as mid-rotation kind of guys. Except Bueller's never had arm surgery, so mm-hmm. I obviously take Bueller, uh, whereas Sheffield's been banged up a little bit before. But yeah, I guess the short version on Bueller is it's, 60 fastball. It's 65 velocity, but it's easy to see. There's no deception. There's not a lot of playing. There's not a lot of life. It's, so it plays down to a 60.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Curveballs 55 or 60, uh, sort of consistent 50-55. We'll show you a 60 here and there. Uh, Changeup, I didn't really see it. I know it's been averaged a little above in the past. It was probably a 40 that day. Um, and he's like 6'1", 160. And it's not a lot of deception, not a lot of playing, not a lot of life to the fastball. Command's fine, but it's not great. He's had some elbow soreness, never really been hurt, hurt. But I was talking to some guys at that game after we'd kind of, you know, seen Bueller and kind of waiting for the next pitcher to come in. We're like, there's a bunch of pitchers like Nate Kirby, Kyle Funkhauser, Bueller, Bickford, uh, Cody Ponce. There's a bunch of dudes in that sort of 5 to 15 or 20 range. Which ones do you, do you like want to bet on? Which ones are you a little nervous of, think might have a little bust in them? And I'm like, I think Bueller might have sort of more bust potential than some of these other guys because – when when dudes have good stuff and it doesn't play, it's because it's flat and it's easy to see and doesn't have a lot of life to it. Uh And when guys that have been healthy suddenly don't get healthy, it's because they're small and don't have any bulk to them. And he's both of those things. <laughs> and I'm a little nervous about how that's going to play out over the next five years.
0: Right. Oh, all right. Well, good information there. That's Walker Buehler. Um, Phil Bickford, uh, he was number five <clears throat> on your way to early list. And uh um, I think he – at one point – uh, What do you have? Like, uh, he was averaging two stri- two strikeouts per inning, I think, w- with, uh, with with Southern Nevada, J.C.
1: Yeah, where's he at now? Do you have his stats in front of you?
0: No, I don't. But uh, why don't you say something about him, and I will clandestinely search for those.
1: <laughs> he announces out loud. Um, yeah, so Bigford uh, went 10th overall at of high school, didn't sign for mysterious reasons that I've heard what they are, but I don't think I'm allowed to say. Uh, he then went to Fullerton for his freshman year and was pretty good. Uh, and then went to the Cape and was really good, and then decided he wants to be eligible for this draft. So he transferred from Florida into a junior college so he could be eligible.
0: Wait, oh, wait. Oh, I, uh, Chris, I'm uh, not an expert at uh, this college baseball, but I had not heard of that. It's obviously relatively common for a guy out of high school to go to a J.C., either because he didn't have the grades to go to college or he wants to remain draft eligible. I, 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 it must be less common for a guy to transfer from a four-year to a J.C.,
1: Especially when it's not like an Iskandarian type deal. Actually, I don't know what his deal was, but it appeared his deal was didn't get to play a lot, you know, wanted some playing time. Let me go to a JC and then I can go to a better fit four-year school for me. Mm-hmm. Or, or sometimes there'll be some sort of disciplinary thing that kind of turns the guy off to the coach. It'll usually be something like that when a high-profile guy leaves, but in his case, he just wanted to be draft eligible and left, which is not very
0: common. Okay, right, right. Cause you, what, you realize that you're pretty good and then that you could yeah. get drafted the next year?
1: Well, it actually happened this year with Mac Marshall, who was embroiled in the Jacob Nix-Brady Aiken whole saga with the Astros. He was the third guy that was going to be involved if they signed all three of them. And he went to LSU, and then after he got to campus, the Astros called and said, hey, we might have all that money you wanted that we didn't think we were able to give you. If we're able to get Aiken for five, then we might be able to sign you. And apparently he was all ready to sign, and then they weren't able, obviously, to offer the money. And then either he or LSU didn't like how that went down. And he decided to go to junior college. So he went he went to LSU and then left to get draft eligible, although there were also some extenuating circumstances involved. But he didn't even pitch in a game before he left. He was there for like a month or two and left.
0: Oh, did he not? Wait, so, but so he's allowed to? Wait, yeah, what is the rule? You, you can't go to you class? Can
1: go, you can go to and from junior college all you want. But, yeah, it used to be once you enrolled in a class you couldn't sign, which got changed. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, because it used to be that was the cutoff. Because you had like a year to sign everybody, and so once they went to class, that was the technical cutoff when they show up in a four-year college. Right. And now there's just the signing deadline, so the whole class thing doesn't isn't an issue anymore. Oh,
0: of course, of course. Uh, so Bickford now forty-eight innings, uh, eighty-nine strikeouts, thirteen walks. So not quite uh, not quite two for one anymore.
1: So that illuminates a little bit of what I've heard about Bickford, which is I was told he was very good early in spring, and our Eric Longenhagen wrote him up and provided some video of that early spring outing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was told he has been not very good to an enigma too bad in the last four or five
0: outings. Okay, and- well, I can actually tell you what he's done in his recent outings. He, he has a uh, – no, I mean, it looks pretty good. He did, He's not striking out like 15, but struck out seven over five and two-thirds his last game. Nine with zero walks uh, before that in seven innings. Twelve with two walks in five innings. No, he's, yeah, he's, his last four starts have been still pretty good.
1: Well, I mean, from a scouting context.
0: Right. Okay, well, uh, I can't tell you that.
1: I, that's why I was waiting for you to finish, like, to so explain why you're wrong. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you were, you were correct at what you were saying. You misunderstood what I meant. Yeah. Um, or maybe, yeah. you, well,
0: a uh, possibility you didn't make yourself clear enough. Uh, this is also a possibility.
1: That's true. I said bad. I didn't, I didn't. Yeah, because bad for some people can just mean performed poorly. Um, yeah, so I don't, I'm gonna have to make a few more calls to figure out if I want to put him like 15 or 30, uh, you know, which sort of areas he's gonna be in on this list. Uh, but he's somewhere lower and I don't know exactly where to put him, but he's also a bit of a mystery in of himself because when he was in high school, he popped up out of nowhere in the middle of the spring. He was throwing 87 to 90 for, like, over the summer when everyone was seeing him. And then suddenly he started throwing 91 to 96, like, in the middle of the sprint, like, right about now, basically, mm-hmm. uh, and had unusually good command and a projectable frame and showed some idea of what to do with the breaking ball and a changeup and suddenly became a guy. And then after he didn't sign, I was asking around, like, what do people think happened when he didn't sign? And there were multiple teams that said, we have never talked to him before. And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, we've never had an in-home, we've never had a meeting, things were handled very oddly, uh, through his advisor, and we don't know what the deal was. And it sounds like there's still some teams that are a little, a little turned off by that, because the, the advisor that was working with him hasn't handled other players like that. So the implication was that there was something unusual, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't even like, oh, it's bad makeup, they just didn't know because they've never talked to him before. And in context, for most, you know, players, there's, you know, meet him as a junior, shake his hand, maybe help out or even coach his, you know, summer team. Have a couple in homes with him, talk to him after games. Like that's sort of the normal interaction you have with a player. And for some reason, Bickford was the very rare player where there were whole many teams who had zero interaction with him, which seems obviously pretty weird. Um, so when you take that with his sort of, um. Came out of nowhere talent and then was okay at Fullerton and then was better late and then was fantastic on the cape and then was very good early in junior college and then sounds like he's really regressed and there's some sort of mystery around his sort of personality. Like you can see why some teams are a little, little wary of that. He's one of those guys that's going to have a wide split on what people think about him, even draft day. And I'm trying to figure out what people think about him now.
0: Yeah, that's so strange the way you're describing it. What, what I mean, what is the possible? What, and I, yeah, I'm
1: trying not to be unfair or like, uh, you know, be libelous or whatever, but those are all facts. I was told all those things happened, and those were all concerns. And then when he was throwing while in the Cape, everyone was like, well, he's throwing pretty good. I guess he'll go in the top ten or something now. Because I think he decided he wanted to transfer either while or right before he was on the Cape. So people were watching him there. Or maybe it was right after, I don't know, but some people were watching him there and then talking to me about it afterwards and saying, I guess you gotta take him there, but they didn't seem super excited about it. But, but obviously the Blue Jays got to talk to him and some other teams that were considering there got to talk to him, so it's not like that happened to every team. It's just more teams than the usual zero have some, you know, uncomfortability with, with that whole situation.
0: Right. Yeah, very, very strange. Um... I'm not going to go through which, the entire... which will
1: be a, probably a podcast exclusive because I'm pretty sure if I read a report on him, I'm not going to mention that. It's just you know, it's a lot of a lot of stuff that may end up meaning nothing in the long run.
0: Right. Uh, I'm not going to go through whole list, and also we're we've already we're already at the 50 minute mark. But you did go. Uh, so let's see. Number six on your list was Kobe Allard. No idea who that is. He, not tar- he
1: he'll be out for two months with a back injury.
0: Oh, okay. All right, but well, that's it. Uh, number seven was Dansby Swanson.
1: He's up from there. He'll he'll go in the top seven.
0: Okay, all right, and then fine. Finally, number eight is Daz Cameron, who is a, a center fielder, Georgia High School, and this is, this is what we want to get to. You saw him this weekend.
1: Yes. I don't okay. know if he knew that I saw him,
0: but right. I did. Right, right.
1: Uh, yeah, he uh, was hyped as a Justin Upton-type generational 1-1 prospect when he was a sophomore in high school. hmm he was re- very good for a sophomore in high school. I didn't really see him a ton then. I just sort of saw him in passing. I'm like, yeah, looks pretty good. Mike Cameron's son. I get it. Uh, and he played for East Cobb. Obviously, he's in the Atlanta area. Kind of has all those advantages built in. Uh, and then when I finally got to see him this past summer and kind of bear down, It was not – it did not look like Justin Upton. And we're all – I was sitting with some people that had been told what he was like and had seen, you know, very limited glimpses like I had. And we're all looking at each other like, is this what this is supposed to be? Like it was Mm -hmm. very good, but when you're told this guy's supposed to be a 1-1 prospect, you're like, that's not a 1-1 prospect. Uh, and then basically the whole summer it ended up going like that, where it was people <laughs> slowly finding out as they went to events to see him for really the first time and bear down. They're like, hold on. I was told this guy was a lot better than this, which is sort of unfair because I think he looked like a first-round-ish prospect the entire summer. But everyone was told he was supposed to be super amazing, and he wasn't. Uh, and so because this is a weak draft, I think I had him eighth, and some people believed in him, and I think – Thought that a little more would come just be, for, you know, some little indicators they saw. But the performance was always just all right. and The tools were just, you know, pretty good. Uh, and then this spring he's been, eh, continued. It's 55 or 60 runner, can probably play center, kind of average arm, pretty solid defensively, 50 at best power, probably a little less than that. And above average to plus bat speed. Some idea what he's doing, but uh, didn't hit amazingly in games over the summer. It was just all right. Uh, and in the game I saw, he was on his front foot the entire time. And actually, when I ended up posting the video, there were dads from the other team sitting next to me that I think you can hear on the video saying, he's on his front foot, he's on his front foot, throw him a curveball, which is exactly what the pitcher did, and then he popped out a couple times and had weak ground balls. And I was like, you know, and actually I was standing there with a scout, and we were trying to uh work through our feelings, because this scout was working for a team that is in a position where they're probably not going to draft him, and... uh we were like, all right, so we've seen him hit all right in a game before. He is not hitting all right in a game right now. The guy was throwing like 85, so it was decent velocity, but his breaking ball was like 62. or so. It was like really, <laughs> really slow, and his changeup was like 68. And so obviously it was like kind of junk ball-y. Uh, but we were like, all right, we've seen him hit before. We know he has good mechanics, um, and he wasn't hitting today. He was clearly on his front foot. Like people's dads were recognizing this. Like anybody could have seen this. In the long run, today means nothing, and him being out on his front foot this entire spring, if that's what's happening, doesn't really mean anything. The question is what is it going to be like five years from now, and obviously the tools are about the same as they were over the summer, so can you fix it? And for me, that's a little difficult because I think that comes down to, you know, being able to work with him in a cage, being able to talk to him, that sort of thing, which I may or may not be able to do either one of those things with him before. Uh, but that's sort of where your area scout comes into play and can kind of set up these sorts of things for your cross-checker to sort of investigate it one-on-one and things like that. I can't do it, uh, but one of the things that me and this it was a cross-checker agreed on was – Some guys have such good feel for hitting that when a guy is throwing 85 with a really slow curveball and you basically have to hit one or the other, they know you can gear up for 85 and then you can just adjust to the 62 and you'll be fine. And we know he doesn't have that level of feel for hitting because he, I've been told he's been sort of blah this whole spring and this guy goes, yeah, I saw him earlier. He was kind of like this before too. Um, so he's clearly not that innate feel for the, for the art of hitting guy that's just going to hit everything no matter where it is that, you know, Albert Almora, whoever. But he has the tools to be at least a 50 bat, if not a little bit more, and could still be. And so your job is to figure out, given this information, what do you think he's going to be? Where would you take him? And I was looking at this scout, and I was like, I still feel like he's going to go somewhere from – you know, 15 to 30, just given this this draft is kind of poor and he's got the tools to be an everyday guy and people have track records seeing him be decent. And so if a comparable guy pops up out of nowhere and you have no track record with him, you probably still feel better with Daz. And you know he's got also the bloodline's help because you know he's got, you know, sort of good genes. His dad was an athlete, athletic guy until he was 40. He's been around pro baseball. He knows how to handle himself. He's been on the showcase circuit. Like, all those things are general positives. You don't have to worry about certain things you might worry about with other players. Uh, But, yeah, I guess that's just the essence of scouting. You get a bunch of information. Some of it doesn't agree. You don't know how that means he's going to be in five years, and your job is to figure out what you think he's going to be. And you can see how doing that for hundreds of players means you're going to be super wrong on some of them.
0: Yeah, super wrong. Super wrong, Kyler McDaniel.
1: That's what they call
0: me. That's the name of this podcast.
1: <laughs> super wrong, Kyler
0: McDaniel. Yeah. yeah. Is that are you accept? Is that, are you all right with that?
1: I'd rather endeavor to analyze all baseball,
0: but I guess I could do this too. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> The super the super wrong Kyla McDaniel. I, I like that title. The super wrong Kyla McDaniel. Yeah, that's fine, yeah. Right? so there you go. Yeah, fair enough.
1: Have I fulfilled my obligation? Because I need to go walk my dog.
0: Yeah, you don't have a dog, but that's so the, I don't know sorry. what that's a euphemism for. But I also uh, I don't think anyone wants to know. Uh, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I have a real dog. That's what I meant. Uh, just gonna a Do
1: you have any pictures of him
0: on your phone? I do. To her, but yeah, I do. I've got to, um, let's, I'm going to end this podcast, but it's been a real pleasure, Kylie. And uh, why don't you stick around for a moment? Um, thank you. But uh, thank you in the meantime, Kylie, for having uh, analyzed all prospects.
1: I'm the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com.
0: That's Kylie McDaniel, the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.